more blocks that you have, the more um, they begin to create a whole picture, right? Does that make sense? Uh, the Word of God is like that also. Um, with experience, and when you first, it's just like everything, when you first start at it, you're, you're maybe not good at it, you're maybe a little leery, you're maybe not quite um, comfortable with it, but the more you do it, the more you become comfortable with it. The more you do it, the more you enjoy it. And, um, you know, the pieces start fitting together into a cohesive whole. And then, you know, you start discovering things and it's like, there. then what happens is you get the joy of discovery, right? We all like to discover things, right? God has put it in the heart of mankind, the joy of discovery. And so when we begin to study, when we begin to understand the tools and understand how God has set things up, then we begin to find out things about God that we never knew before. And we discover things about him that we didn't know, that we didn't understand, and that makes us want to discover more things, right? That's the nature of discovery. It makes us want to discover more things. Um, so, and the, again, the thing about hermeneutics is like hermeneutics, all hermeneutics is, is have you ever, ever heard the words to a song and you don't understand it? So you listen to that song again and again and again to try to understand it. And the more you listen to it, the more you begin to understand what the song is talking about, right? That's hermeneutics. That's all hermeneutics is, is listening to the words, listening to what they're saying, listening, listening to the language that they use. Until you be, begin to become familiar with it and you're like, oh, I get it now. All right. Um, I don't know about you, but like I've heard songs like thousands and thousands of times before. And sometimes like you're just like kind of thinking about that song and all of a sudden it clicks and it makes sense. It's, oh, that's what that song's talking about. Same type of thing. Um, and so when we talk about hermeneutics, especially when we're talking about biblical hermeneutics, we want to talk about the five W's. Okay. What are the five W's of biblical hermeneutics? The five W's of biblical hermeneutics are who, what, when, where, and why. Okay? If you understand these things, it begins to give you an understanding of what, uh, what the verse is talking about, what the chapter is talking about, and it, it helps you to understand what's going on. Okay? We all tracking together? We all on the same page? Okay. So, who... Okay, when you, when, you, when you begin to study the scripture, you want to ask yourself, well, in the first place, who wrote it? Okay, because, matter of fact, I want to hand these out. Because it's, it's always important to understand who wrote the book. Um, and this thing that we're passing around... Um, Basically, I just got on the internet and did a quick survey of the book of Ephesians. Who was the book of Ephesians written by? Well, it was written by Paul, okay? Because it says in the first verse, it was written by uh, um, Paul the Apostle. Then you want to find out when was the book written, written, and it was written in around 60 to 63 AD. Because if you understand these things, and if you understand some of the history of what was going on, it helps you to understand why Paul was writing and what kind of circumstances that he was addressing. Okay? Um, which brings us to history. It's good to know a little bit of history. If you know any kind of history of that, that part of the world, it's really helpful. Um, for instance, uh, you guys have all heard of Alexander the Great, right? Mm -hmm. Okay? Um, 
and and you guys all know about the Roman Empire and how the Roman Empire swept that part of the world. We've all seen the movies about Jesus and when he was born and how the Romans were dominating the the people of Israel, right? Okay, well, you might you'll you, a lot of times we hear about things like that, but they're not really important to us. They don't really connect with us. They don't really make any difference to us. But if you think of it in this way, because of Alexander the Great, and could you turn the temperature down just a little bit, please? If you think of it, no, it's hot. If you think about Alexander the Great, before before Alexander the Great, there was all all these nations in the Middle East, they were unrelated. They were unconnected. They were just different nations doing their own thing, living their own way. Uh, following their own gods, and they had nothing to do with each other, essentially, except sometimes they would go raid each other and steal each other's crops and things like that. But other than that, there was really, and, and through trade, there was a little bit of cross-culturalization, but there wasn't a lot of that, okay, until Alexander the Great came along, and the Greeks, and the Greeks came and basically conquered that whole area of the world. And when they did that, um, they begin to spread their philosophies of, uh, and their ways of doing things. As a matter of fact, it's spread even to our country now and that a lot of the ways that we do government and a lot of the ways that we think are based on the Greek society and stuff. Okay? Now, when they also did that, they spread their language so that in that whole part of that world, Greek became a common language. Okay? Are you guys tracking? Now, after them came the Medo, Med, well, no, actually, the Medes came before that. After the Greeks came the Romans. When the Romans came, they spread technology uh, as far as um, how to build aqueducts and things like that. The Romans would build roads everywhere they, they went, okay? They would make these roads that would, would, could take like five chariots across, okay? Now, I know that you're thinking, well, this, well how is this important or how does this matter? Okay, because of the fact that, there, that the Greeks had established a single language, and because of the fact that the Romans had, dis, had made roads available to where you could get from point A to point B over great distances in a, in a hurry, because of those facts, the gospel spread like wildfire. And so, all those things, those kingdoms were prophesied in Daniel. Daniel prophesied, you guys remember reading about the statue that had the gold head and the bronze and then the the clay and stuff like that? All those were talking about these kingdoms that were coming. So God prophesied in the first place before they ever came that these kingdoms were going to come. And because these kingdoms came, when Jesus came into, into, stepped into mankind, when he stepped into the history of mankind, and he was resurrected, went back to his father, and the disciples took the gospel. He said, go and tell, uh, go to all the world and make disciples of all men. Because of that, because of those two things, the gospel was able to spread rapidly. Because there was a common language that everybody could speak. And so the gospel, the Bible was, the New Testament was printed in Greek. They could share with everyone. They could speak the same language to people in different countries, all because everyone had the same language. And they could also, you, know, you, hear, you read about Paul and his missionary trips and stuff like that. He was able to travel rapidly and spread the gospel to many different places because of the road system. Does that make sense? I don't know about you, but I think that's pretty cool. 
And so, again, if you know a little bit of history, these things will kind of help you to understand and to know and to, and to put yourself actually in those situations. Okay? So, so the five who, or the five W's of hermeneutics, when, when was it written? Um, and when you read, when you, um, you look at your, um, your outline, a lot of the Bible dates are not exactly accurate, but you know that they're kind of close, right? So again, when you, when you say, when was it written and, and who was it written to, you know that at the time, um, that it was a Greek civilization. And because of that, there was a lot of Greek, um, worship of, of Greek gods and paganism, right? And then there are other books, right, that were just more, the, the audience was more Jewish, right, and then rather than Gentile? Yeah, but we're just kind of talking about the basic kind of basic history of that area and how it was shaping the people that lived okay. in the biblical times and okay. stuff. So, yeah, so... Um, also, you want to say you want to you want to ask yourself where where was it where was the person when he wrote it, and where was where was where were the people that received the letter? Again, you read about the uh, the churches and the the seven churches in the Book of Revelation. These were Greek; these places were in uh, Greek cities that were full of pagan worship. And a lot of what uh, the writer of Revelations, a lot of what Paul was writing to the people was specifically addressed because these were the issues that they were facing, right? If the Apostle Paul were here today, he would be addressing us in a completely different way. He would be talking about completely different issues, completely different things because we're in a different culture, a different society. Does that make sense? So again, these are things that help you understand why the things were written, to who it was written, what it was written for. Uh, The third thing is um, why or what? What is the subject? What was he saying? And a lot of times, um, that's why it's good, guys, is to read, say, like an entire book at the same time. Like the book of Ephesians, take the entire book of Ephesians. Because Paul wrote that as a letter to people who lived in Ephesus. So if you break it up, you're never going to give the complete sense of what he's trying to say. It has to be taken as a complete whole. And I'm not saying that you can't take breaks and pauses, but the whole, like the book of Romans, you can't truly understand the book of Romans unless you take it as a complete whole. The book of Ephesians, the book of Galatians, these were all letters. And this, I mean, think of it. It's like Paul had birthed these guys in the spirit. They were his children. They were his sons and his daughters. And so he's writing to them so that they can understand what's on his heart. He knows what's going on with their lives. And so he's writing to them, trying to address the issues that they're facing, the things that they are dealing with on a day-to-day basis. Um, why? What is the author addressing, and why is, he ad- why is he addressing it? Why did he feel so strongly that he felt the necessity to write these letters? Again, writing a letter back then was expensive. It wasn't like you go down today, go to the post office and just mail a letter, put your 37-cent stamp on it and things like that. Um, their paper was made out of papyrus. It was expensive. It was a process that you know wasn't easy and things like that. So, And even delivering letters, I mean, you had to give it to a person who would go through bandit-infested roads and try to deliver it, and he might not always make it. <laughs> So it wasn't like our postal service today. I mean, there were there were issues that 
you wouldn't just write a letter like you write a letter today. I mean, you had to think carefully about what you were writing. You had to think it had to, there was some thought process involved in it, and there was some care taken in it. So, um, so again, if we don't understand those degrees, then in a lot of ways we won't truly understand um, the Bible. Okay, does that make sense? So, I wanted to give you guys some kind of tools that, that I have. And again, these are just kind of some of them. There are millions of tools available. That, you guys want one of these? Oh, no, I don't think there's enough. Okay. There are millions of tools available to help you understand the Word. But these are just some of the ones that I like personally. Some of the ones that I use personally. Um, I used to have a hard copy of the book of uh, Knaves Topical Bible. I don't anymore, um, but they have Knaves online. And a lot of these books that I've got, nowadays they have everything online. So you can just go online. I mean, used to be, you, you used to have to spend like hundreds of dollars on books and stuff to do, to do the things that we have free to us, have freely available to us through the Internet. Again, the internet can be an evil thing, full of evil and bad stuff, but it can also be a good thing because there's lots of tools on the internet that we can use to find out more about God. Um, Nave's Topical Bible, it's awesome. It's just, basically, it breaks it down into topics. Um, things like, like um, the fear of God, things like holiness, things like love of God, things Jesus... All these things, there's all kinds of topics that you can just kind of click on and it'll give you scripture reference after scripture reference. And, I mean, I've, I've spent literally hours just going over different topics and, and just, you know, just taking those topics and studying them and stuff. So, Nave's Topical Bible, that's like one of my favorite all-time tools. Um, another one is Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. And that's this one. And basically what this is, is um, my mind froze. What's the one where you have links to different scriptures? Um, Cross-references, exactly. Basically, so like you'll be reading a scripture in a certain verse and there's a word that you see that that word kind of sticks out to you. So you can look it up, you can look up that verse and that word and it gives you cross-references that use that same word. Does that make sense? That's so, one of my favorite books over there, by the way, because you can be studying a certain scripture that you just really love, but you want more that kind of complements it, and that will give you like a buttload of them in one, in one look up. Yeah. So, I mean, again, these are, because I don't know about you, but like, even if you've read the Bible, the entire Bible several times, you, you're not going to know it all, right? <laughs> right? And so, like, say that you need scriptures to help you uh, overcome anger, Right? Say you're dealing with anger. You can look up in that topical Bible on the subject of anger and it gives you all kinds of scriptures that you can use to strengthen your inner man to teach you what God says about the subject. that make sense? Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing, commentaries. Commentaries are really good. One of the most well-known commentary there is is Matthew Henry's uh, commentary. He was a, a Puritan. Um, it's got some really good stuff. Um, there's so many different commentaries. Spurgeon had commentaries. John Wesley had commentaries. Pretty much like all kinds of people had commentaries. Uh, the one thing about commentaries, and again, with all of this, like the um, Treasury of Scripture Knowledge and Knaves, those are the Word of God. Okay, those are just Scripture references. When it comes to commentaries, these are um, 
opinions from men of God, people that really loved the Lord, people that really knew the Lord, and this is they might say, this is what I believe about this particular scripture, okay? Um, that can be really helpful because sometimes there's some scriptures that are really tough to understand, some scriptures we don't, it's like, I don't really know what they're trying to say with that. But you can look at, say, what Matthew Henry or Spurgeon or someone else said about it to help you kind of understand, right? It's kind of like what we do when we go listen to a sermon, right? When Jeremy explains, you know, Matthew 5. Matthew 5, this is what Matthew 5 means. That's basically a commentary on the Scripture, right? Uh, the thing that you have to be careful with that is it's not Scripture itself. But it's, it's some man's opinion on what that, may, that means. Uh, it can be really helpful, but, you know, it's like I, I've told you guys before, when, when I really started getting into Bible, uh, studying the Bible for myself and trying to know uh, the Word of God, I had the NIV study Bible. That's the Bible with all the study notes in it, um, which is really good, but, but if you're not careful, you can get to where those notes are as much Scripture as the rest of it and stuff. So the thing that you have to keep in the back of your mind at all times is that's not actual scripture. And that men are flawed. <laughs> exactly. No, every man, no matter how good. Mm. Uh, now, we'll, do you have to know Hebrew and Greek to really understand the Bible? No. And we'll talk about that. That's a really good mm. question. We, we will definitely talk about that. Or you have to go back to the original Greek and see what they, that said before you can... Um, you don't because I think that the translators who have translated the Bible for us have done such an awesome job and have, uh, have been really learned men and really uh, men and women of God. And so it's not something that they took lightly or, or did lightly. However, we'll, we'll talk about kind of going back to the original languages for yourself and, and trying to unpack it a little bit for yourself, which is helpful. Okay, I mean it would obviously be best if if you could if you could read the Bible in the original Greek but even, or the, in the original the Hebrew. You know, it's still man's language. Sure. And so it's not going to be perfect. Right. Even in the original Greek. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what I, what I believe is I believe that that they it, it, the Bible says that they were inspired by God, right. but as you as you as you say, they were still men, right? So as men. They might have flaws in the way that they, like we actually talked about last time, how some of the original manuscripts, when it's talking about uh, the number 666, in some of the manuscripts, somebody got it wrong, and they said 616. So again, yeah, it is being copied by imperfect humans and stuff, but the beauty about the, the original manuscripts of the Bible is that there's over 2,400 original manuscripts of the, of the, of the Bible. So there's lots of different ones well, to... What do you mean to, by that? There's not, there's not original letter from John that he wrote. No. Original manuscript is like back in the day they didn't have printers. They, have they didn't have copy machines. Letter. So they copied them by hand. Wow. And yeah, so... Um, and again, they were... They, they, we talked about it last week, but they were really, really precise in how they copied it. They, they would uh, they would copy like like... Parts of the letter, like especially the Greeks, there's they're like a certain, if a part went like this, they would copy that. Like Jesus said that my word will not pass away, not one jot or tittle, you know, stuff like that. You know that verse in Matthew? Mm -hmm. He said, I didn't come, I didn't come to uh, abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it, fulfill it okay. and not one 
uh, jot or tittle is what the King James says. But, but basically, those say like an I, how we do an I, and then we dot it. Okay, the Hebrew and the Greek are the same way in, in that they have, say like you might have a zip like this and then a slash like that. So when they would copy it, they would copy the slash, right? And then they would copy this part and then this part and you know one of the times. Something's not copied exactly, it changes the whole letter, right? Right, exactly. And so they were they weren't they weren't copying the words, they were copying portions of the word which made up the word. So they were taking it piece by piece and minute just like meticulously and just really minutely and copying the little parts and stuff to try to be it correct. Okay, um, my point that I was saying about the 2,400 manuscripts, these were all handwritten copies. Um, the only, the closest ancient book that we have besides the Bible was uh, Plato, um, Plato's Iliad, or Homer's Iliad, which had something like 640 copies of it. The one before that, the, the closest one before that had only 200 copies of it, okay? And everything else goes down to like 50, 10, 5, stuff like that. The Bible has more original copies of it than any other book in the history of mankind. It's got over 2,400 copies of it. So, so my point being is that they can take these copies and they can compare them with each other and say, this is pretty accurate. It's really accurate. Matter of fact, we were talking about... Not an original Shakespeare no. Right. And that was in the what 1500s. Right. And there so and there there are people that fight over well what yeah, was what did the original say? The original, so. Exactly. And the thing is is like we were talking about last week too when they found the the Qumran scrolls or whatever the Dead Sea scrolls, yeah. they found a book of Isaiah that was a thousand years older than any other that they already well, that's had. That's huge finding. Yeah. yeah. Because now all these prophecies about Christ were before Christ was right. born. But the beauty of it, you had it after Christ, and you right. said, "Well, they can just fill in." Right. Like right. That right. Now they, that takes away that argument. Right. Like 938 prophecies about Christ, right. and it was done thousand years before Christ was born. Right. That's that's right. a huge find yeah. as far right. as evidence. Yeah, and the beauty of it though is that even though it was a thousand years older than any that they already had, it was like it matched up almost perfectly. So, so yeah, I mean, so yeah, so that's again that is the reliability. I just want to go back to the, the, I've heard people say on the Hebrew and Greek that if you know the original languages, it's like going from reading the Bible in black and white to color. No. Black and <laughs> white good. to color. Yeah. And there's sometimes that you hear like a verse redone by somebody that really knows the language and you're like, or you wow. hear the real meaning of and, and it just like slaps you. So, like it's so much more powerful. Right. So. Yeah. There's definitely benefit yes. in you know reading the Bible in color, it's but right. and it the the problem you can get into is they say never study, never get into your own study on an issue that you're trying to defend in your own life. Yeah, like if there's some issue that you wanna that you okay. kind of want have a tendency towards that sin, and <laughs> never. Go to the Bible on that. Let other people translate the Bible mm. to you on that. Because there's a lot of people that have built doctrines, changing this word a little bit and that word. Well, this doesn't really mean. You know, what does no. the word is? You know, <laughs> I mean, you know. And so then they'll go change it and build a huge doctrine on the sin that they yeah. intend to commit. So in that sense, it would be dangerous. 
But for so many other things, it's yeah. just, you know, it's more like reading it in color if you know it. And you know, and, and I've, I've often wanted to learn, like, Greek. And I actually bought lots of books to learn how to study Greek. But the thing about that is, is that you would also have to get as many Greek other books as you could. You know what I'm saying? Because you couldn't, you, you couldn't just, like, you learn Greek and read the New Testament. You'd also have to read as many other books as you can, too, because that, that would, you know what I'm saying? Because if yeah. you just read it from one perspective, you don't know what that word is is completely. You, oh, you yeah. just get, you get, you know. So, yeah. Okay, moving on. Wilson's Word Studies, and there's all kinds of different books about word studies. A word study will break down words... Um, um, such as like shekel and just break down the word and just kind of give you shades of meaning of what that word means and stuff like that. So that's good. Um, manners, things like this, manners and customs of the Bible. Um, this book is awesome. Anything by Alfred Edersham is awesome because um, what these books do is they talk to you about biblical times and uh, they, they kind of from a historical perspective how people lived back then, the things that they would eat, um, how they would keep their animals, stuff like that, and just kind of behind the scenes type things. You know, it's just like a, like a, like manger scenes that you see. And it, like most of the manger scenes that you see you, are these kind of wooden building and stuff where the animals are and stuff. Well, like if you if you know a little bit about the history and the culture and the society that those guys lived in uh, around Bethlehem, there's like lots of caves and stuff like that. And so basically, what would happen is the shepherds. They would kind of put, build like a, a um, just a fence in front of a cave. And that cave would kind of be like their corral. And so basically that's kind of the way they did their, their, uh, um, their mangers and things like that. So, you know, again, this kind of just gives you, um, it's like, you know, you look at all these paintings of people like Rembrandt and um, all, these, all these famous um, painters in, of, of the Middle Ages, Rembrandt and Michelangelo and stuff like that. And... A lot of times, like like they'll have um, the people dressed in the time in the period the clothes that they wore at the times when they were painting. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. It's like if we were to paint, uh, uh, say, like the Last Supper, and I painted all of you guys in here as as the disciples, and you're wearing your Zira shirt and you're wearing your striped shirt like that, and it's like, well, that's interesting, but it does that's not how it was, right? Um, they didn't sit at chair. They didn't sit at chairs at tables and stuff. They basically sat on the floor and kind of reclined. That's why it talks about when um, the disciple that Jesus loved reclined on him and stuff when they were eating. And so these things again, they're just all they are is they're tools to help you understand what was really happening, what was really going on. And uh, yeah, I want to share. Okay, so I love this book too. Uh, this one goes along really well with another one that's one of my favorites. That um, it's right here called. Um, Dictionary of Biblical Imagery, and this one's really similar to Manners and Customs of the Bible, but this one's a lot more extensive, and you can go by it's an alphabetical order like a dictionary. So what you can do is look up certain things like what he just said, certain topics, but here I'll give you an example. This one's in this book on marriage. It's also in this one as well, but it says, um, among the Hebrews, uh, a mirror this is what an engagement was like. So think about when Jesus said that he was going to go away to prepare a place for us, right? In uh, John 14, um, he was going to go and uh, that he was going to come again and call us to himself, and he was going to his father's house to prepare a place for us. It was considered the beginning of a marriage when they were engaged, okay? 
Um, the, tr the trothel was usually determined by the parents or the brothers of the other party, and the engagement was made between the friend or legal representative of the bridegroom and the father of the bride. The spousals were made very early in life. I go on and on. Um, listen to this. At least a year or sometimes more elapsed between the betrothal and the marriage of a maiden. At, at the Last Supper, when Jesus offered, this is in this book, I think, when Jesus offered the cup to his, to his disciples, in their culture, when you were offered a cup uh, to a woman, a, a husband would offer a cup to a woman he wanted to marry as an engagement. If she took that cup, she was saying yes to the proposal. So it's like the Last Supper was wow. the engagement to his bride, which That's is us. Awesome. Isn't that yeah. cool? That and it so brings cool. so much deep meaning into communion now, too, yeah. right? Okay, so... And um, also on that, when he would go away, he... Right, I'm going to read that. I'm going to read oh, okay. that. So we accept his... Yeah, we accept we his engagement, become, right? We accept his engagement, right? And yes. he's gone away to prepare a place for us. At least a year, sometimes more, would elapse to give him time for preparing his her outfit... Mm -hmm. Our garments, right? In case of a widow marriage might take place 30 days after betrothal. The betrothal was usually accompanied by a feast in the house of the bride. The engagement to be binding must be either written on contract or by the reception of presents by the bride from the bridegroom. The Holy Spirit was given as a seal of the promise of his coming and a seal on our hearts, right? Um, it says, he presented to the maiden valuable gifts, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the reception of these gifts made the contract binding. Um, and then it says, The bride remained at her father's house until the time of marriage when the bridegroom came after her. Meanwhile, communication between her and the bridegroom was kept up by means of the friend of the bridegroom. The Holy Spirit is the friend of the bridegroom. And then and here it talks more about how their custom was that the the man would go away and actually build a part, a portion of, on his father's house, he would build another room mm -hmm. on his father's house mm -hmm. so that he could go and get his bride. When he finished building that room, I go and prepare a place for you, he would go get his bride and bring her to the father's house. Mm -hmm. See? Isn't that awesome? And then, like, it was just really, really cool. And not only that, but their custom, the father had to give the approval. approval. You know when Jesus said, no man knows that hour, not even me, but only the Father who is in heaven. It's the Father, even if he said, okay, I'm done, this is good. The Father was the one that said, no, you're done, now you can go get her. Mm -hmm. So it's just wow. cool stuff, y'all. So Plus, we, I, that adds meaning to do this as often as you do it in remembrance. Uh -huh. Right. I mean, it's and like it's almost like a... Um, his bride. Remember, like you're a, engaged to me. Yeah, exactly. It's like a... It's like an anniversary, you know. It's like you remember, you know. I remember yeah. when we got married and yes. you know, stuff like yeah. that. Because, remember that cut like this where he wants us to keep that covenant. Yeah. Covenant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like if anyone that's been married, after you've been married a while, sometimes you got to remind yourself, yeah. you know. Oh, it's yeah. like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah you know, right. Yeah. But you, you know, can so. think how Joseph must have felt when Mary came back, when, he, when Mary came back and she's pregnant. Because it had quite some time had passed for her to be showing, and you know he must have been thinking, "Dang, I've been faithful. I've been building on. I've been. I've been building on my father's house. I've been doing all this to get ready for you, and and you didn't wait for me, you know." Yeah. And so. But he was a just man. Yeah. Right. But he, he could have. He could have. Yeah. Yeah. And he trusted her too. Yeah. 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 Ye
the Bible said he was a just man. He decided to put her away quietly. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's so true. he had it within him. He's a good man. Yeah, that's true. Within him. He, he had that. Yeah, before okay. the dream. Okay. Jeremy pointed that out specifically. Another thing that I think is interesting is like back then in Hebrew culture, like the girls were so young to get married. They were like yeah. between 13 and 15 years old. And the Lord says that he will restore our youth. It makes me think about mm-hmm. like um, Sarah, you know, like she was older whenever she had a baby. And just like as we wait upon him, like he restores. That's good. Like, mm. So that's, that's good. That's cool. good. She laughed. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Okay. Other books that are really good. Fox's Book of Martyrs. Um, used to be in the old days they they had that because it was written in the 1600s and it, so it was really hard to understand and read and stuff like that. But now they have updated versions. Awesome book. Um, it just talks about some of the early believers and and people who were who laid down their lives for the Christianity that you and I like have and. You know, and stuff, and the privilege that we have, and stuff, and just people that were boiled alive and caught on fire, and stuff, and so you know, it's it's good to read stuff like that. Um, like I said, history is good. Um, the best. This is really good because uh, Eusebius was a Christian. I think he was like in the fourth century or something like that. So, but he writes from a historical point of view, mm-hmm. right? He was an eyewitness to things that were happening and stuff. And so, actually, he was in the first century, but he 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 wrote about things that he saw going on, which is kind of cool because it com- it complements the Bible. Like right. it doesn't really con- it like works, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Was he, a Christian? he was. Yeah. Was the best a- book that's out there though on on history of the early church is Josephus by he was not a christian but the thing that's cool about it is like his writing like especially when he he talks about the destruction of jerusalem in in 70 a.d and stuff it like lines up with the scripture perfectly big time and so so uh even though he was and that to me that's one of the things that's awesome about it is that he wasn't a believer Mm -hmm. so he wasn't trying to prove christianity Mm -hmm. but yet the things that he he talks about were just spot on so I mean, Josephus is, is awesome. And he talks about some Old Testament stuff and things like that also. All righty. So those are, again, and a lot of this stuff you can get online so you don't have to go out and buy books and stuff like that. But um, So now we're just going to kind of look at some tools and we're going to use some. So in the next section, it'll be titled um, Studying the Word, Reference Materials 7B. So in the B section, he's going to further talk about how to use your reference materials. So he's going to take a subject matter to give you an example and walk you through on how you can use your reference materials to come up with some conclusions. So if you follow along on the part B of this um, section, you'll learn how to use your materials. What particular subject he'll be studying at this time is going to be the law. Um, Is the law for today? Is it not for today? Um, Does grace establish the law? Does it nullify the law? Um, or can we sin because that grace may abound, you know, all those kind of questions. So, uh, if you want, if you have some interest in that subject, you might also want to follow along for that purpose, but we're mainly trying to walk you through and help you know how to use some of these study materials. So come along on part B.